What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. This is episode 118, and I have my personal friend, Monsell Denton, on the podcast. Monsell is the co-founder of Nootropics, which is an unbiased and accessible platform to learn about nootropics and smart drugs. When he isn't improving cognitive function in others, he enjoys a host of active hobbies. He likes jujitsu when his body allows, meditation, and a healthy dose of travel. He enjoys learning lessons, whether they come from life experiences or books and podcasts sounds like the male version of me minus jujitsu um so today's podcast topic is going to be pretty sensitive we're talking about prison and breaking the law and learning from these kind of situations and circumstances and what i'm going to ask of you today is first of all listen with compassion with sympathy maybe even empathy second of all try to see if you could put yourself in his shoes and if you would have learned the same things he's learned and if you would have had that same outcome of becoming a better person after going to something like prison or going through a situation in your life where you feel so, so shameful and embarrassed for what you've done, but you learn to let go of that shame. I think we all go through that experience of feeling shame in certain circumstances, but I think Mansell had it to an nth degree because he had been publicly recognized as, um, someone who had broken the law and who had gone to jail and had to learn in his own way to release that shame. And he's done something incredible with his life. He now talks about this. He writes about this. He totally puts it out on the table and talks about how he's become a more vulnerable person, how he's learned from his mistakes. He's changed. He's grown. Really beautiful things. And you know what else? I'm going to share something about myself on this podcast. It's something that I have kept hush-hush, I guess, for... Um, what, seven years since it happened, or I think it's around seven or six years. And I've never talked about on the podcast. It's been something that I've just really never wanted to talk about. But today's episode, I do talk about it, something that I've done. So please, I ask again, have compassion, have understanding, maybe even some sympathy slash empathy, because we all make mistakes, not just, um, little tiny ones, sometimes they're big ones, sometimes they're huge ones, but the important thing is that we learn from them, and I think it's really cool that I have this platform to be able to share these things that have happened in my life, and I can share things that have once held me back and created shame in my life and release that shame by speaking up and speaking out. So thank you for listening to this episode. Um, I'm so excited about it, really. This was one of my favorite episodes. I think last month, Last week, I'm sorry, was one of my favorite episodes. This is one of my favorite episodes. Oh, so many good episodes recently. It's just been so much fun to record now that I've shifted my focus from food and body image over to motivational speaking. So enjoy this episode. Also, know that something awesome is coming up next week. I will be announcing it next Wednesday. I have been working behind the scenes on something I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's a membership site. I have been working on a members-only site where you're getting one-on-one coaching with me in a group atmosphere. And that's really all I want to say for right now, but know that next Wednesday, I'm going to talk about it, and you can already sign up because I've been working to get this thing up and ready, and I... I'm really excited about the first month of this membership because I am going to be involving some people in it that will be such a treat for anyone who signs up to be able to learn from and to hear from. People who I have not had on 
the podcast and will not have in the podcast will be in this membership site, but only for the members. So keep your eyes open and stick around for that. If you're really interested as well, you can reach out to me a little bit beforehand um, and I can give you some more information. Otherwise, just wait till Wednesday. If you want to take the next step, if you want to do one-on-one coaching, literally, and just be with me, then I am accepting now one new client. I have accepted three new clients in the past month. And like I said a few episodes ago, I was um, maxing it at four. So I have room for one more one-on-one client. And that's going to be all my time allows with the retreats I'm hosting and now the member site and all this stuff. So if that's you, if you want to take this journey to the next level, if you want to make something huge out of your life, if you want to live louder and you want to play bigger, then reach out to me for my one-on-one coaching. You can go to the coaching tab on my website and you can hit apply now and apply for that one-on-one coaching spot. And that, like I have said, is a six-month minimum of working with me. It's intense. It is not for everyone. So I will interview each person that reaches out to me to do this and see if they are right fit for me. So that's where you can sign up for that. Last but not least, here is the review of the week. This comes from M. Ram and she says, wow, what a lady with five stars. Wow, this girl's wisdom and insight is through the roof. Awesome. As someone who has struggled with some of the same things Maddie has struggled with, hearing her speak life and redemption through recovery and wellness is incredible. All girls should hear what this girl has to say, not just ones that are dealing with issues. Who are we kidding, though? None of us are perfect and we're all dealing with something. Mad props, Mads. <laughs> P.S. The mushroom hot chocolate mix from the last episode looks divine. M. Oh, thank you, M. I love that. Mad props, Mads. That was clever. Um, the mushroom hot chocolate mix that she's referring to is the uh, Sigma Foods brand um, chaga hot chocolate chaga mushroom drink mix. Yep, that's pretty much it. You summed it up. Um, that is delicious. I actually had some of the... Um, Sigma Foods, uh, chaga, just plain chaga, not the hot chocolate chaga, but just the plain chaga this morning. And it was so good. I love mushrooms. And that's pretty fitting to read that review today because we're talking about nootropics, which is basically a um, cognitive function improver as well, similar to mushrooms. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for leaving that review. Everyone enjoyed this episode. Really interested to hear your thoughts on it. So if you want to start a conversation in the MBM podcast tribe, you can do that on the Facebook group. And you can also leave comments on the show notes. And that will be on my website for episode 118. Let's go. Welcome to the Mind Body Musings podcast. The show for everyone and anyone that is ready to break free from the dogmatic chains of the health and fitness industry and create their own life free from restrictions. Now, introducing your host, Madeline Moon, a former fitness model gone sane and the author of the popular self-love book, The Perfection Myth. If you dig the show and you're looking for more insight on how to stop food and exercise from controlling your life, check out her website, maddiemoon.com, and grab your free guide. If you're ready to end dieting once and for all, it's time you learn how to pursue real health instead. Enjoy the show.
Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Body Musings podcast for episode 118. I am here with my personal friend of at least four years, Monsal Denton. I met Monsal quite a while ago at a uh, a conference, like a, a paleo s conference, whenever we were both really into that scene. And we just really hit it off from there, and we started hanging out, and we started just talking a lot, and he started a podcast, and I was a guest on his show, and that was the very first podcast I was ever interviewed on. I don't know where that lives. I don't know if I want people to hear that one, but it was such a good experience for me to have, uh, to be able to dip my toes into the water of podcasting, and it really got me hooked from there, and that was, what, like I said, four years ago, I think, so I am so grateful for him for introducing me to this world because maybe, just maybe, if he hadn't had done that, I don't know if Mind Body Musings would even be alive. So I'm grateful for that and I'm so excited to have him on the show today because he is the first guy I've had on in months, probably around seven months, and he's also going to be the first one to talk about this very um, deep topic. I mean, we love talking about shame on this show, but we're going to be talking about shame in a completely new way that has been untouched. So I'm delighted to have him on. Thank you, Monsal, so much for coming on to the podcast. Absolutely. I'm honored to be on the podcast and have been the first person to interview you those many years ago. So it's, it's glad I'm glad to, to be at the start of that journey and now be, be right now as well. And so for everyone that's new to you, I'm going to include a link in the show notes to the article that you wrote on my website a while back, probably like a year ago. So I'm going to include that there. And I really, really, really uh, implore everyone to go to the show notes and click on that link and read his blog post. It's amazing. I, I was just refreshing my mind reading it the other day and I'm like, wow, this is so deep and so like thoughtful and everything that my heart says about shame, you kind of just brought it out in this new light. And all of your posts though, like all of your posts are very inspirational and it, there's a part of me, there, there are things in my life that have been like, I don't know if I want to talk about that yet. And reading your stuff is like, hey, why not? It just makes me feel really empowered. So thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Absolutely. Thanks for that reflection. It means a lot to, to have somebody else express that as well. The first thing that we do on this show is go into your background and your story. So go back in the past and tell us uh, how this whole journey got started for you and how it's led you to where you are today. Sure. Well, I was in high school. I'd, I'd start in high school, I think. Basically, I was really feeling insecure and inadequate about my relationships with women. And so I met someone who lived in Switzerland and in order for me to go spend time with her and go be with her, I had to come up with a certain amount of money in order to go to, to live in Europe. And I did that through uh, stealing documents from a museum that I was working in. And then I used that to live in Europe for almost two years and spent time with her. And when I was, when I returned to the U S I actually got arrested for, uh, you know, they, they had known that I was doing this. And so they arrested me and I basically had to start my journey there in a way, because it was so jolting to me to have 
that fact, you know, kind of put in my face, like I did something wrong and I have to pay for the consequences. And that's really where I started getting into uh, trying to improve my decision making and in, in both esoteric terms like philosophy, what is the, my philosophy on life, but also like tangible terms like what kind of food am I putting into my body, what kind of like books am I reading and shows am I watching. And so it was kind of a turning point for me to get arrested because I just had to reflect internally on what was causing me to, to make the decisions that I was. And that led to many great things. I, you know, finished college. As you mentioned, we went to UT together. I started a business. I had a number of things going for me. And then the chickens came home to roost in summer of 2014. I was actually sentenced to prison and I was given an eight year sentence and went to the Texas State Penitentiary. And uh, I spent six months there before I was released on kind of a, a shock probation um, type of program. But in any case, that was another amazing learning experience. You know, if I, if I thought that, that getting arrested in the first place was, was going to challenge me and improve me as a person, then going to prison for six months was definitely a whole new level to that. Wow. Yeah. And I love that you use the word amazing. Like the last thing I would think of is to look at it in that light. I'd be like, oh, this hard thing that's happened in my life that just changed me for the worse. And woe is me. Like not necessarily that I would do that, but our natural human instinct in this world we live in is to look at all of the dark sides of it. And it's so amazing that you just are like, so you're so empowered by it. You're using all of these things for you, not against you. And that is what I think draws so many people to your message because you're able to say, yeah, I went to prison and look at all this stuff that happened because of it. That's made me to who I am today. Yeah. I always tell people it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I truly believe that it is. And I think, you know, given that we're, you know, we're talking about shame, I think that's important to, to keep in mind because the standard narrative is that going to prison is bad. It is shameful. Like I am to some people considered like a bad person because I did that. And I think it's been really empowering for me to realize that I don't have to take on any of the labels that anybody says. And, and so that's kind of why I have that mentality. Whereas I think a lot of other people who go to prison kind of take on that shame that society, you know, puts on to them as being bad, as being someone that did something wrong. Mm -hmm. I have so many questions like in my head right now. First one that comes to mind is the time between you were arrested and when you were sentenced. That's when I met you, right? Yes, exactly. And when between these two times, what kind of, did you carry a weight on your shoulders or were you already like, I'm free, this is for me? Or were you like, when you're meeting all these people, you're doing all these things, did you have this guilt and shame that you were carrying around with you at that time? Because I had no idea about any of this. You didn't say anything. So obviously it's not something you were just completely, hey, uh, my name is Mons. This is what happened, blah, blah, blah. But on yeah. the inside, were you, were you carrying around that? Oh, I was definitely carrying that weight. I carried the weight of both, uh, you know, potentially going to prison because nothing had been resolved for so long. And I was carrying the weight of 
what I had done to my family and to society, to the victims, etc. And, you know, it's ironic, you call me Mons, and that introduction that I had for myself when, when we met was the shame showing itself because I, I didn't want people to necessarily identify my, my name with me because of the, uh, publicity that came with it. Anybody who could search my name could see some of the, the articles that were not, you know, to my liking. And so I kind of hid that by just introducing myself as Mons. And it, it's a very small thing, but last year when I really was just like, I'm done with this whole shame thing. Like I'm not having any shame about any of it anymore. I made a point of telling people who called me Mons, like you can call me that. I'll still go by it. But just so you know, that was a way for me to hide my, my shame. My, my, I go by Monsel is my, is the name that I go by. Mm -hmm. And you can call me whatever you'd like. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you asked that question, um, even with like how we met. And so with your family members, when you had to come out with them on this, were they, how did they react to all this and how did y'all work through as a family to get past this? Well, my family was aware of it from the beginning and I think part of what hurt me the most and part of the shame that, that was the hardest for me was it impacted them so negatively. My mother is from India and so there's uh, a culture of, of like reputations that need to be upheld and, uh, you know, sh certain, um, it's kind of a uh, archaic, but that is very deep rooted in that side of the family. Uh, and then there was obviously the monetary strain in terms of lawyers, in terms of restitution and basically, you know, like taking money out of my little sister's college fund in order to pay for this mistake. And so that's where a lot of the shame came from. I think though, my parents, I have a lot of gratitude for them because they are incredibly forgiving and they did, you know, want the best for their kid no matter what. And I think they also realized uh, they were they were able to kind of get uh, separate from the emotions and realize that the rationality of the situation, like our son's in trouble, he needs help, let's get, you know, the help that he needs, whether it be lawyers, what have you, and let's move forward because staying in the past is not going to help anybody and it's not going to help him, you know, pay us back. It's not going to help him live the kind of life that he wants. So I think it was, it wasn't any one thing that we did for the family to, to have this healing process. It was just a sense of maintaining a rational like view on the future instead of complaining about the past. Mm -hmm. And that's a gift in itself, just having a family that understands rationally, son needs help. We need to help him. Like, that's a great thing. There has been things that happened in my life and in my past where my parents, you know, the gut reaction is what the heck, what the heck did you just do? But then it was soon followed by here's like the ultimatum. You get back on track or, you know, you, you come live at home and like, you're just not, you're, you're going to be with us and until you're of this certain age, blah, blah, blah. And like, they really treated me like an adult and gave me these decisions that I had to make, but it was from a loving place of they cared about me. And it felt really good to know that they were on my side, no matter how, 
you know, as sad as the word is disappointed they were at the time, they were on my side and they wanted to help me and do what it took. And that was a sense of love that I could feel from them that even though it was darker times in my life, it was the highest sense of love that I had ever felt. Yeah, it makes such a difference to have that kind of support system. And and I know that I'm grateful for it. And I know that people don't have that. And that is one of the hardest things to do is, you know, face something where you don't feel like you have people in your corner. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. So overcoming the shame, what what was one of the most important things that you learned to do to overcome this sense of shame, to use it for you instead of against you? Well, I, there was, there was a, a turning point moment. I remember I was, I had just been essentially dumped by a woman after very brief relationship, but because of my inexperience with women, I kind of had taken that, really to heart. And I remember I went to San Antonio and I had to see my probation officer last year. And I was just being berated about all these things that I should have done, all these threats. If I didn't do this, um, I think that poor woman was just having a bad day. And I got a text from my sister and I thought about if my sister who was in high school had to deal with what I dealt with or what I put on myself. It wasn't, you know, I had, I was plenty blessed when I was growing up, but I put all kinds of, um, you know, limiting beliefs on myself in high school. And I thought if she has to deal with this, then that would be the greatest travesty. And it was from that moment on, I told her and I told her everything. I told her my entire past and everything. And she was thankful and she didn't, you know, react in any kind of way. She didn't, she didn't like think any less of me. And I think that was kind of the the catalyst. I was like, Oh, I can tell people this and they won't think anything less of me. In fact, I can help them. And I just started telling everybody and I would, you know, first it was like very close friends. And then it was, um, you know, family and writing articles and talking with acquaintances and then doing podcasts and just essentially shouting it from the rooftops, not because I want attention, but because the more I made that public, the less it had control over me. And that was probably the biggest, you know, kind of turning point in terms of turning that into an asset instead of a liability. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, You know, I'm feeling like super, uh, inspired right now to share something with you and with everyone. My heart's like pounding so fast because this is actually something I have never shared on my podcast and it's what I was alluding to earlier, but I feel like this would be the perfect show to talk about it with you. Um, but when I was in, when I was in high, no, not high school, I was in high college. Um, I had shoplifted And I, yeah, I got caught and it was like, it's something that I don't think anyone probably would expect me to say, but you know, you're talking about this time you stealed. Well, I stealed and I was very confused at the time. This was also the same time I was just abusing my body with drinking and partying and uh, a sorority like crazy. And 
um, eating, you know, my eating was so off. I was just abusing my body in so many ways. And I was very heavily influenced by somebody else. You know, I take full responsibility of my actions, but I was heavily influenced by somebody else who did this. And I was out with her once and it was like, uh, Hey, let's do this. I promise you it works, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. And, and I did it and kind of panicked and ran out of the store and just Everyone could kind of tell lady came out, said, Hey, you two girls come back in. And of course I was just like, yep. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I walked right back in and then I got escorted to this little private room and we waited in there for two hours until cops came and they came and they, t- you know, talked to us like we were criminals, terrible criminals. And I just remember feeling like this insane sense of guilt and shame and then we were taken off we were taken to the the local jail in arkansas and i spent like i guess probably like five hours in there until my friend's dad came and picked us up and then i made the phone call to my parents this is what i just did and they were already on their way to see me because it was parents weekend at my school for our, our uh for my especially for my sorority all the parents were coming to meet everyone. And then that is when my parents told me, this is, this is your decision. You can either shape up your life and you don't, you don't have a drop of alcohol for the next five months and you don't go to these parties and you get plugged back in with, um, your faith and spirituality, or you come home, you don't get to go to university of Arkansas anymore. You, you live at home and you, we're going to watch you at all times. And that is when I, that's that, that moment in my life where I felt, I feel so much shame and so much guilt about it. And my parents did everything they could to get, you know, just to off my record and just make sure that I was, you know, clean and like not going to, you know, shoplift anymore. And my face was plastered all over all these frat guys' phones and their desktops because the thing to do on a weekend night in Arkansas is to go on the local county jails like mugshot stuff and look at people and whose face pops up? My face. And everyone is sharing this picture. My whole sorority found out. Like I had to deal with going to basically sorority court where I had to go in with a panel of like 15 people and speak about my actions and they got to decide what my fate was. And every, every single person knew my face and right by it, it wasn't like, you know, being drunk, which is kind of a regular thing at U of A, but it was like shoplifting. And people were telling me like, wow, like it's okay if you're getting drunk and you get caught by a cop by, for being drunk, but you got caught for shoplifting. That's like, someone specifically told me like, that's trashy. And it just was so much just shame, so much shame. That's probably the most that the, that the that event of my life is the one that I carry the most shame. So why not share it with you, like and everybody else? It just it just felt like the right time to talk about this. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing it, and I honor that part of you that's willing to go there because that's that's something that. You know, it doesn't matter what it is or how trivial it may be to, to, to other people. For you, it was like so visceral. So that's, that's awesome that you shared that. 
Yeah, it was. It, I mean, like in just coming from just all the, the situation, the situation of what I had to deal with and disappointing my family, <clears throat> getting that picture up, having to go to sorority court and like all these things. And like in the, in the, in comparison, of course, it's nowhere near as like what you had to go through. But I relate on my own scale of that feeling of having to come to terms with what you did and then say, how can this work for me? And so I think that was really a great thing in my life because if I hadn't had done that and if I hadn't had had the next five months of not partying like crazy and not getting super plugged in with my, with the more spiritual group of my friends, like that changed a lot for me and that helped me get back on track. And I, I felt that deep point of shame. So I know what can come from that? I know now the deep point of uh, liberation because I felt that. Yeah, that point of liberation is kind of you know what I feel every time I share this, and it it really you know I hate to kind of turn this into something scientific or anything, but I mean there's there's a lot of studies that show other people when you talk about a subject like they can feel what you feel when you say something. And if I spoke to somebody and I felt shame about this subject, they would feel that and they would take on my shame. It's, it's, you know, I feel like sharing that, but actually coming to terms with it yourself is so important so that they can have a completely different uh, interaction with that truth as opposed to a shameful interaction with that truth. I love that. I'm really glad you brought up that science aspect because I, I really agree. I agree completely with that. And even the act of me just sharing this with you right now, I like, I feel like, Hey, it's really not that big a deal. <laughs> like it just feels like when, when you, when you speak up about your shame, it shuts up. It's so true. It's like, it doesn't carry that secrecy and that burden anymore. It's just like, this is part of me and every part of me is important. Words and all, like no matter what I've done, that's part of my story and who I am today. And you shame gets its power taken away and it goes over to you the minute that you're sharing it. And then other people can also adopt those feelings and relate and then feel that liberation as well. So I'm really glad that you, you brought that point up. Absolutely. Um, so you wrote a post on entrepreneur.com about how discipline is freedom. How did you create discipline in prison? How was that manageable? Well, I think, in every situation, no matter no matter how bad, and I didn't even have it that bad. I mean, geez, these days the prison system in Texas is isn't even as bad as it was 20 years ago, and none of those prison systems are even a fraction of what it was like to be in a concentration camp, for example. Mm. But they there's always an opportunity for you to control something. And I think it's important when you feel like you really can't control anything that you take accountability for the few things that you can. For example, I keep saying you, I, I felt that I didn't have control over anything when I was in prison and I had to take into account what I could do with what I was given. And you know, that's, that's kind of like the, the philosophy of life. You, you know, I may not have been given X, Y, Z. Some other person may not have been given X, Y, Z, but I have this and I have to make the best of this. 
So that was kind of my philosophy, and it, and it didn't happen right away. I think it took a while for me to get out of a, kind of an emotional pity party for myself where I – you know, was, was, when am I going to get out? Like, am I, is, am I going to be released now? What, what about now? Et cetera, et cetera. When I really just like surrendered and I was just like, I am here and it doesn't matter if I get out tomorrow. It doesn't matter if I get out from two years from now, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, but I'm here now. What the hell am I going to do now? So that when I do get out, I am most prepared to be successful. I really love this balance of surrendering and controlling what you can. A lot of times on this podcast, I use the word surrender a lot because it's like surrender, let go of control, stop trying to fight for control. But I think there's a lot to be said about surrendering to what you cannot control, but still being aware of what you can. And discipline is something that I think I've had some negative connotations with because I was born such a rigid, disciplined person. And that's kind of what fueled the fire for my eating disorder as like discipline, restriction, limitations, like this, this, this. And like, it was just, it was a weakness and a strength. And I think that my negative connotations with it are changing greatly this past year because no, discipline is not a bad thing. I just abused myself with it. And I'm sure you can relate in certain ways. But now it's it's about learning how can you have discipline in the areas that will fuel you for the better. You can still have discipline in the right areas, not the wrong areas that are going to bring you down, but the right areas and lift you up. And obviously for you, creating some discipline and feeling like you were controlling certain areas of your life when so much control was taken from you give, gave you a sense of, of peace and, and just a direction and a goal to work towards. Yeah, I think one of the one of the big problems which I just kind of realized in hearing you speak with discipline as far as how it's perceived is I believe oftentimes discipline comes from some tyrannical source, some uh, outside dogma that forces a discipline on people. And this type of discipline is oftentimes what creates these disorders because there's an element of shame in there. Like I have to be disciplined or I'm not good enough. I have to be disciplined or I'm being bad. And that dynamic of discipline with shame is what creates so much, so much of the tension for me. Kind of the process of creating my disciplines has been more free from that because it's come from more within what I want for my life as opposed to what someone else is telling me. And that was a very long process of which I'm still on, uh, you know, that journey. But by kind of removing these outside influences and creating the disciplines based on what I want to do and what resonates with me, it's much easier to, to look at discipline in a positive light as a way of achieving my goals and being in control and being focused on what I can control as opposed to doing something for somebody else, like my parents doing something for society or doing something for uh, the clergy or the church or what have you. Mm, yes. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to rewind this and write this down in a, in a way because it, it spoke to me a lot. Like when you have, when your discipline is fueled by the, if then, then it's probably going to go in a 
you know, a negative direction. If like, if I do this, then I do this. Like, then I get this, then I receive this, then I am this. That's when it's being fueled negatively. But whenever you're being fueled with your discipline for um, like joy or for personal development and growth, something that really fuels you and makes you be a better person or feel like a better person or just feel good emotions, then that's the good kind of discipline. And I think in every, everybody's intuition, you can sense there's the feeling of expansiveness and the feeling of closed off. And if your discipline is creating the feelings of closed off, breaking down, shutting down, then that's not fueling you positively. But if your discipline is making you feel expansive, then that's good. And it takes a while to learn the difference because you could be doing the same discipline actions for a long time and you have to break away for a while then come back and maybe have a totally different experience and it really does help you. But there probably should be like a time period where you can you can leave that away for a while be more intuitive and just do the things in the order that they seem best. Maybe go with some more flow in your life and less structure and then revisit that structure in the areas that you think need it. Well, you need the structure and see how they make you feel. So what areas, what, what did you do exactly in, in prison that gave you some discipline, the feelings of discipline? Well, one of the things that I did was waking up early. I have always been an early riser and I woke up at the same time every morning when I was in, uh, before I was actually sentenced to prison. I would wake up and I would, you know, do my morning routine, etc. And when I was in prison, I had the same philosophy. And it was, it was kind of the worst and most inefficient process ever. But they bring breakfast in prison at four in the morning, sometimes like three in the morning. Ugh. And so they wake everybody up to eat breakfast. And oftentimes what I would do is I would wake up and I would uh, stay awake after that because it was like I would wake up early in the morning. It would be difficult, but I would be kind of flexing that that muscle to, to just do what I know needed to be done versus kind of the instant gratification of going back to sleep. And that is what started it all. That's, that's kind of what started the day. It's what starts my day today. And it just adds an initial bit of momentum that I need. And I kind of use that to that free time at the beginning of the day before I had to go to work, I would um, read and I would basically, I had a, a, a friend named James Altucher who recommended that I do basically lists of ideas like every single day. He's got a blog post about it actually. And I would just list ideas so that I would stay in the mental space of, you know, creating and being uh, creative and, and, you know, doing things of that nature. And so that was kind of the practice. Um, and then I would go to work, which, you know, I was very blessed that I, worked in the library. So I got to go to the library and, and most of the time I got to read books and read newspapers and keep up on current events, whereas nobody else did. Uh, and so I did a ton of reading and I had access to books every single day. So I'd take new books. And then when I'd get back to, uh, back to my cell after I was done with work, I would read and I would read and I'd read and I read a ton of classics. I read a ton of psychology, um, history, you know, like just anything that I could get my hands on that would improve my perspective and consciousness. I, I read. That is a total blessing that you were in there. Did you also have 
like outdoors times? Like, did you have lots of time you could be outside? Get so time? we didn't actually have much time to be outside at all. And that was, it was hard for everybody. Um, I did my best to work out and I did so pretty much every day just because I didn't have, it wasn't a heavy burden on my body. It was just kind of getting my blood moving, getting my muscles activated and things like that. And I even, you know, one of the interesting things is when I was in prison, I kind of, I had to, I had to create some kind of, um, interaction with the, the cellmates that uh, where I could get some credibility because that I'm of a fundamentally different world than 99.9% of them. I come from middle class, educated, etc. And one of the ways that I gained a lot of credibility was working out because I had, you know, kind of done it in the past and I knew what worked and I knew what didn't work and I knew like bodyweight exercises. And, um, in fact, in one instance I was like, I had this one guy who was kind of small and I, I, I convinced him to get on my shoulders so I could squat his body weight while I was squatting. And, uh, and so I had, I had plenty of opportunities to work out even though I didn't go outside. And that was another part of my discipline was to get my body moving, to get it in action. And, uh, it always made me feel a lot better, uh, as well. Is that how you got so big? Because I swear you went into you went in there not that big and you came out. Last time I saw you, you're like huge. <laughs> well, I definitely had a lot of practices that I built when I went into prison, like going uh, to exercise more often. Um, if you'll remember beforehand, I had a very kind of um, laissez-faire approach, just kind of do it occasionally, but very heavy. And when I got out of prison, I definitely lifted a lot more often. And, um, but actually the, the problem with prison is I don't have any control over my food. So I don't get nearly enough protein. I don't get nearly enough calories. And so it was, it wasn't until after I got out of prison that I got much bigger and stronger, but that created a real like mental challenge for me to be in prison to know that I was not getting the kind of the food that I needed and things of that nature, but still be mentally okay and grateful that I was getting any food at all. And, you know, just do the best that I could with what I was given. Again, it wasn't going to be perfect because I didn't have control, but of what I had control of, I could do the best that I could had. Oh man, that's a lesson. I think everyone listening to this show is going to, gonna take home just like the fact of not being in control of your food and still being grateful like if you can do it anyone can do it because even a lot of us like are in control of our food and we're still anxious about it because we're just ah food you know eat clean all this stuff and it's like let it go just like eat intuitively eat what you can i know you couldn't do that at the time but for everyone listening just be grateful for what you do have so what was the food like i can't even i just can't even like because Food, it just, it makes up so much of who we are just by how we're being nourished and being able to eat prison food and keep that mindset. How'd you do it? Well, I think part of me realized for one thing, I couldn't maintain my perceptions of what food had to be in order to be edible. You know, I kind of grew up with my mother cooking Indian food all the time and I obviously had enough money in the middle class to, to eat at good restaurants, et cetera. 
but I had to, you know, fundamentally shift. Like I can, again, I have an option to throw a pity party and, and just stick to my, you know, standards of eating or realize that like this is nourishment that I need in order to, you know, do the work that I'm doing to read the books and retain the information to, uh, you know, work out. It's, it's just fuel and I just need it. Um, specifics were, they had, man, they had a lot of soy because they had to give a certain amount of protein per day. And so they added a lot of soy and sometimes I would eat that. Um, sometimes it was like literally unpalatable, like just impossible like to actually Like tofu? Eat. Like soy? Is no, like- no. They had like soy pellets. I mean, it tasted like rubber and it was, there was no flavor. Like soy it had pellets. no flavor. What are those? Yeah. Tiny, like it, we called it cat food because it looked like cat food and I'm sure a cat would not even eat it. Um, I didn't eat that, uh, very often and they, they, they cycle things. So it wasn't like all the time we had that kind of food, but it was, you know, small portions. The vegetables were always canned if there were any vegetables at all. Lots of breads, lots of, of, uh, you know, just starches and stuff. Um, I got, really lucky that I could, there's something called commissary that you can, you know, you can buy, you can buy things or you can have your parents uh, or family buy things. And I would buy uh, tuna packs, like packs of tuna, and I would buy packs of sardines and I would buy peanut butter. And I had, I could even get protein powder from the commissary. So I would buy those things, even though the quantity was really really small. And then I would also get, um, they had basically the, the milk that they would give us was essentially protein powder that had flavor. And so I would every morning for breakfast, I would fill up like two water bottles full of that stuff and just keep it for the rest of the day. It's like protein drinks for later. Um, but really everything for me was about like, got to get enough protein, got to get enough protein. Cause it was, you know, they were doing the bare minimum of protein and they really weren't even giving that great of protein when they did give it. And I bet like the fat sources were pretty crummy too. Just like, I mean, it's not like you're getting, you know, avocado on toast every day or anything like that. No, I mean, <laughs> it was, it was really, it was really a challenge in a number of ways, I don't, you know, I don't think that, uh, people have to live without eating, um, you know, corn chips or anything like that. But I will say that a lot of the people, uh, that were in prison had a kind of mentality uh, or education around food that was less than ideal. And so they were buying cookies and and all kinds of stuff. And of course it's low quality, you know, it's not the best quality stuff, but it it was, it was plenty sweet and it was plenty savory. And it just like, it got all those, those different, um, kind of sensors, especially in such a situation. It's like so hard to, to avoid that because everyone is, feels kind of bad that they're in prison. It, it doesn't feel good. And so they, you know, it's very easy to like try and feel good, um, with food. And that was uh, another challenge to face. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel like scared for your life in there? Like were like all the stereotypes of what prison is, just everyone beating each other up and, you know, just, uh, it, was it like that? Or did you feel relatively safe? 
Um, it's, uh, I felt relatively safe. I think 20 years ago in Texas, it was actually, Texas was one of the worst in the world for rape. Um, and it has, it reached such a climax that there were news articles, et cetera. People were dying in prison because of HIV and they really, really had to like put a lot of money into correcting the problem. And they did a really good job of it from what I could tell. But at the same token, you know, Texas is a hotbed for violence and there's a lot of cartel violence that goes on in and outside of prison. And I got to see some of that. I mean, there was one experience when I was getting food in the cafeteria where I got food and a few people behind me, there was a, a scuffle between people of rival uh, cartels and someone was stabbed to death and it like literally I could hear him screaming to to the side. Um, and obviously I lost my appetite and I walked out, but you know, they came with tear gas and, and there was plenty of fist fights, but I never felt really in danger. Kind of one of the philosophies of prison that everybody respects is if you don't go searching for trouble, you're, you're more than likely safe. You're not going to find any. Um, but there were a few times where I had to like make my boundaries clear I had one person who continually felt the need to like come up from behind me and like tap me on the shoulder or like try and like get my attention from behind. And in that kind of environment, um, like coming from behind is a big no, no. It's a bit, it's like asking for a reaction. And I had to tell him like, I don't, I just want to do my time. I just want to, you know, get out of here as fast as I can and do my best to, to, you know, improve myself while I'm here. But if you keep doing that, we're going to have a problem. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, it's a very animalistic environment and you have to, um, maintain very clear boundaries and not show weakness because it is almost like it's some parts of society, especially in prison, it's very much an honor based culture. And, you know, it reflects what it would have looked like maybe in the 18th or 19th century in the United States. That's what prison is. It's like, if you say something against my honor or you act against my honor, then I have to defend it or else everyone else will lose respect for me and take advantage of me. Wow. Good for you for being able to do that and stick up for yourself. It's like, man, you just, you've experienced so much that so many people won't be going through. And it's fascinating for me to be able to just hear these things. And I've, um, have you heard of the, have you heard of the show 60 days in? I have not. You may want to check it out. I don't know. Maybe not, but it's, um, it's very interesting. It's this experiment that, uh, the Clark County jail did where they put in it's jail. So it's different, but I'm sure it's, it's very similar to some aspects. Um, I don't really know too much about the differences, but, the they put in seven people from I guess you could say just the outside world into a prison undercover and they record everything that goes on in the prison and the people just document on the camera what they're experiencing, what they're going through. 
And you see, you can see a lot. Like it's interesting just to be able to get that perspective and see what goes on inside of, inside of jails when it comes to the whole respect thing you just brought up. Like you stay out of trouble, then trouble won't come for you. But there are times when you need to stand up for yourself and like keep your credit as someone not to mess with. And on the show, you can watch people go very, very wrong. Like there was some guy who, was giving his lunch tray away on the first day. Then another guy came up when he was ordering commissary and said, oh, get me chips, get me this, get me that. And he just said, okay. And like gave his blanket to someone, like was just giving things away. And automatically everyone knew him as like a pushover and someone they could take advantage of. So you have to really, from what I've seen, you have to really be strict with with your boundaries and be on top of that because even the kindness can look like weakness in there. And that's scary. Yeah. Like I said, it's very much in a kind of a tribal um, environment. It's, it, it, it's almost like a blast from the past. Like if, if people, if you had like anthropologists or psychologists come in and analyze the, 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 the culture of prison, I guess that'd be more like sociologists, then you would really see things that were around like hundreds of years ago, sometimes even thousands of years ago, um, that I just had never experienced being an upper middle class individual. So it was, it was definitely enlightening to see how, you know, most of the world and, uh, a, a, you know, a very specific subset of, of individuals live. So my last question before we go to the quick fire round is how did you keep the hope? Because you had an eight year sentence, which is so long. How did you keep hope and not lose yourself? I know the discipline was one huge factor, but what was another one? What was another way that you just stayed centered and calm knowing that that could be eight years of your life? Well, it was kind of a double-edged sword, but I knew I wasn't going to be there for eight years. In Texas, getting parole is usually relatively simple for first offenders, and I could have probably been out in like one to two years. And uh, But that's still a long time. So I, I had a lot of phone calls with my family. It was really great to hear my little sister's voice. They were really young and the youngest one really wasn't told much about where I was or what happened. She just knew that I was with her often and spoke with her often and then I wasn't around much. And so it was good to speak with them. It was good to have pictures and like hear about things that they were doing. Uh, I think a lot of the hope was actually to some degree it was lost. And what I mean by that was I, I did for, for the first three months I was told there was a possibility that I was going to get out on this kind of shock probation program. And that whole three month period, I had hope and I had hope that I was going to get out. And that hope actually caused the greatest amount of turmoil. I, I, would have been better off not having that hope. There was finally a situation where my lawyer sent me a message and said, it's, it's going to happen. I just don't know when. And that's when I kind of lost the hope. And that's kind of where my surrender moment was. And, and it sounds kind of even not completely right to me to say that I didn't have hope, but in some regard, I kind of, 
just didn't even think about it anymore. Like I realized hope right now isn't going to serve me. The only thing that's going to serve me is my actions and it's my uh, daily consistent practices. And so that is what I, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if when you stopped waiting for that end result, which would be getting out and you surrendered to the not knowing. And it's not like you gave up the hope and that's when everything got good, but it's like you just weren't absolutely focusing and putting all of your time and attention to that one moment when you, when you received that, that email that you're, you're out, you know? So that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. So, wow, this is one of my favorite episodes by far. I love this. Um, where can people, where can people connect with you online if they want to just give you a, a hello or send a question your way. I'll have, I'll have the, uh, the links on the show notes for this, but just for anyone that's listening. Yeah, honestly, my Facebook account is where I am mostly. And I would love for people to, to just send me a Facebook message if they feel called to do so, if they have any questions or what have you, I can maybe point them in like some of my other work that I've done, um, on, uh, your site on other people's sites, entrepreneur, elite daily, et cetera, like that. Um, but yeah, Facebook's the place where I usually am. And it's just your name, right? Uh, it's actually M A N S dot Denton. Um, and that's the remnants of that chain hmm. that we talked about at the yeah. early part of the conversation, but, um, I'll send you a link so you can put that in the show notes too. Awesome. All right. Quick fire round time. What are three words to describe you? I think determined, focused, aware. And those are very, I love them. They're very like, just like having a guy on and not having a guy on for so long. It's like so interesting that got yours are so like masculine. And a lot of times the girls are like creative, intuitive, like feminine. I love yeah. it. Okay. Um, beach or mountains? Mountains for sure. Favorite color? Red. What's your spirit animal? Fox. Oh. You don't even get me started. You knew on that. Spirit animal. Oh my gosh. I knew it before you even said animal. That was so fast. <laughs> um, what is a must read book? I would say Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind is a must read. It's a very simple introduction to mindfulness. Okay. If you could interview anybody, who would it be? Does it have to be living? No. Mm -mm. I want to say it would be someone very evil. It would be like Stalin or... Yeah, I I think Stalin or Hitler or something like that. And what would you I have to I have to follow up of course. What would you want to interview them about? I I I judge that I have a very good uh, ability to to tease out emotions in people and I would just love to connect with those people in order to like feel their emotions because it's so easy to see such like vicious people as just 
killing machines, but there were emotions there somewhere. And it's like fascinating to think like, what were the causes of such terrible, you know, actions? Interesting. Yeah. It's a good point. What is the best movie you've watched in, I don't know. I don't know if you watch movies, so I'd say a month, but like everyone always gets stumped on this because they don't watch movies. So I would say like a year. What's just the best movie you've watched in a while? Well, I would say for pure joy, it would be The Revenant. If you are looking for a movie that's like actually really um, both entertaining and very uh, enlightening to some degree, watch a movie called Revolver. And it is it is a amazing um, treatise on the ego, basically. Mm, cool. I'll check that out. If you had a dinner party with three people, who would be invited? Wait, again, are they, do they have to be living? No. I think one of, for someone like me who has a, a history, like a past that kind of started off rocky and has done great things afterwards and will continue to do great things. For me, it's really inspiring to see uh, figures in Texas history, like Sam Houston, uh, Davy Crockett, and Jim Bowie. Like Those are real icons to me because they came to Texas, uh, where I'm from, in order to escape something that they had done in their past and start over in a new place. And I think it'd be really cool to have those three people at a dinner party, just like Jim Bowie, David Crockett, and Sam Houston all in a dinner party together. Very interesting. I love that answer. What's the next country on your bucket list, your bucket list to visit? Well, the next country on my bucket list has to be Iceland and I'm going there for two weeks in October. Yay. That's so exciting. All right, last question. Currently, what's your favorite meal? I, because it comes with love and a nurturing spirit, I have to go with my girlfriend Mallory's meatballs that she makes. She makes like bison meatballs and she puts like sweet potatoes in it and they're so delicious. Um, and it made even better by the fact that it's like something that I think of her, her making. Aww, that is the cutest answer. I love that. And still so very masculine, you and your meatballs. <laughs> well, Monsel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I freaking loved this episode. This, I knew it was going to be really awesome, but like you're, you're great at, you're obviously really great at being interviewed and like you think through all of your answers very carefully before you say them. And you have a very easy, like, like I, I connect with you and it's because like we share something, we've shared many things in common, but like, you're just very intuitive and I really appreciate you being so open because so many people are going to hear this and just feel a sense of relief and pressure taken off. And I know it's going to have a great ripple effect. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for doing all the work that it takes to, you know, create this infrastructure where I can just come on and have a conversation with you and impact that many people. I mean, that's, I'm so grateful for all the work that you do, which I imagine is not always fun in order to make this possible. So, uh, you know, as much thanks that goes to me has to go to you for, for putting everything together. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Everyone, make sure you go over to the show notes for this. This is episode 118 with Monsal Denton, and you can check out his Facebook link there, his Twitter link. And while you're there, if you haven't yet started um, the free course that I have on the website, you can sign up for that and begin today. Uh, Love you guys as always. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll come at you next week with a new interview. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.